come to you and we sing praise and joy to you because you truly are the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship and kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We praise you today in Jesus' name, amen. Take a moment and greet those around you. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Cody. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I realize it's going to be a, a warm one, so I had to wear a short sleeve shirt today just to celebrate how nice it is outside. Just a few announcements. Um, those who are joining us online, we appreciate that you're joining us online and a way to connect. And if you have prayer requests, we encourage you to call in the office and let us know so we can be praying for you. For those of you who are seated here, we have yellow sheets for you somewhere around you. Grab those. That's where we have prayer requests and you can kind of fill us in on what's going on. Our offering is in the back in that box between the two doors there. Just a few announcements. We got the youth are selling wreaths. They're beginning to sell the wreaths. That's one of their major ways to raise money for all the retreats they go on and all that they do. So if you would love to get a hold <clears throat> of the different students that are selling you the wreaths, that's in the Fellowship Hall today, along with the OCC that we've got there. We also have two events coming up for the women. We have the Women's Christmas Port Potch event on Thursday, November 3rd. Some of the details are in the bulletin. In fact, we don't give all the announcements. We have a bulletin for you, so you can grab that and take a look and see what's happening. And uh, we even got Carmen a shirt that said, it's, been in, it's in the bulletin. It's been there for weeks. So uh, there's a lot of stuff there. So I encourage you to, to join us for that event. And then also the Women's Braveheart uh, Curling Night is November 13th from 6 to 8 at, in Rice Lake at the Curling Place there. So I encourage you to do that. Another announcement that we have, and I'm going to take a little time on this one here. This is from the newspaper, Deaths of Teens from the Car Crash Taking a Toll on Community. And of course, we all know that what's been happening in, in our community, in fact, that weekend, the high school had uh, four deaths that happened, uh, an employee and also a, a former student that greatly impacted the community. And it's just been, it's been very hard on the school system. And I was up there a few times with the counselors and just, it's been very hard. We have the privilege today at 2 o'clock to be hosting the funeral for the one girl, Win, uh, Winter, who died in that car crash. And we're very honored to do that. Through a series of events, we're able to host that today here at 2. And we're very privileged that we can be a part of our community, right? Caring for the families and 
for all those that have just been impacted by this. And uh, so, one, we ask for your prayers as we do that this afternoon. But number two, here's my list. I'm calling the saints to get into service. So as soon as second service ends, Pastor Aaron, gratefully, providentially, we do this once a year where we do tag team. We tag team. He's preaching today. I'm going to Sunday school, so I'm excited about that. And that's very providential because I had a wedding yesterday and now a funeral, so my week has been very full. But when he's done second service, he's not kicking everyone out, but we're getting everyone out of church because we got to get this place ready. So we need all these things done, like the pumpkins moved for the funeral. This moved out of the way. The OCC stuff moved. We didn't need to kind of transfer. We need people to come and just spot vacuum the place. There's just a tons of things on here. So I know that most of you leave after first service, after you get your donut full and stuff like that. So we're asking if you, if maybe a few of you even, maybe like at 4.30 would be willing to come and just we might have a few tasks for you to do after the funeral and stuff like that so we can be a part of helping getting ready to care for the family and our community. So if you're able to, even coming about noon, if you want to come, we have a list of tasks that we want to just, Pastor Tony will be at the welcome desk with this list, just show up and say, what can I do? And he'll just say, here's something you can do, and you can just scurry along, and we can, as a church, get ready for that. Does that make sense? In fact, before we do our celebration, let me just take a moment and pray for this funeral coming up. Father God, we live in a world that is plagued by sin. And we know the effects and the result of sin around us. And one of those devastating aspects is death. And on our time calendar, sometimes death happens way too soon for people. And we lift up the Rice Lake School community right now as they have been, just these last two weeks, it's just been overwhelming for the students. We pray that you would allow the students to find safe places and healthy places to find comfort. And we know that true comfort only comes from you. And Lord, we pray for the middle school teachers who are impacted the most by this. We pray for the counselors that have been just every day involved in students' lives, finding students who just need help. Even last night at the visitation, there were a handful of counselors there and there were students there that just many tears shed. This is hard. And Lord, we pray that, again, you give them strength and may they find strength in you, we pray. And Lord, we do thank you that you have given us a variety of ways to be involved in our community. We thank you that we as a church have been able to care for the community many times behind the scenes, doing different things involved in events that hit our community. So we are grateful that you use us. We're just a vessel. And today I pray that you would use this building and what we share to the family to the community that's going to be coming here and to the friends, I pray that you would be glorified in every aspect and help us as we get to be the church. We get to be busy cleaning and getting things arranged and getting some of the fall stuff, decorations put aside for that moment and then afterwards putting it all back together. Just we are grateful that we have this building.
buildings. We are thankful for the building and grounds team that we have, for the ladies that are even in the kitchen right now getting the meal ready for the family. And just there's so many aspects that we have that we get to be a part of. So we thank you, Lord. And we do this for your name and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, each week we do celebrate things that are going on in our church and what we are involved in more and more it seems like in the fall time we like to share about some of the ministries and missionaries that we support and are part of and at this time we're going to have Asher here come up and share a little bit about the campus ministry that we got going on here in Barron County. Hey gang. My name's Asher here. This is uh, Autumn. Some of you might know her dad. So, yeah, and we're, uh, we've been, uh, we're doing some work at the University, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, Barron County. Long name, small campus. It's uh, the college here uh, just on Red Cedar River in town. And, uh, of course, most of you know about CREW. CREW is a, it's a larger organization with a bunch of uh, smaller organizations kind of underneath its umbrella. There's a uh, John Peterson, of course, volunteers with Athletes in Action, the Josh McDowell Ministries, uh, the Jesus Film Project. So they do a lot of different stuff. Uh, crew at UWECBC, I love their, um, when you go on the, the, the crew larger website, it says, uh, we exist to give everyone a chance to know Jesus. So that everyone everywhere would know somebody who knows Jesus. And that's what we do on campus, of course. Our weekly Bible studies are kind of the big thing. Where we're studying the, uh, the book of Second Peter. And um, we have a bunch of different outreaches that we do. So at the beginning of the semester, we always do a uh, picnic down by the riverside. That's a really, it's a really beautiful picnic spot. We invite people to come down there. And it's always fun. The international, we invite the international students to come and let them experience an authentic Wisconsin native meal. You know, brats and cheese. Wow. You know, <laughs> authentic food. So uh, a couple, couple weeks after that, we did a board game night at the boardwalk. If you haven't checked that out, you should. It's a little storefront in Rice Lake. It's a beautiful little spot just to hang out and, um, yeah, enjoy time together. But recently we did a larger event called the Fall Retreat. So it's pretty uh, standard operating procedures for college ministries to have a larger, uh, larger gathering of the different regional campuses around the area to gather and just have a time for fellowship and worship and so forth. The worship was pretty off the charts. It was really great times. But Autumn went along with another student from Northwood Technical College. But there was another international student that came, and Autumn kind of shares about that. This is pretty cool. Yeah, so I, um, I was blessed with the opportunity to have a job at the college, a work-study job, where I get to work with international students, which gives me a very good opportunity to connect with them. So um, I kind of messaged our, our group chat that we have going on, and I invited everyone to come along. Um, not really thinking that anyone would because, you know, they don't, they don't know me that well yet, but one of them did say, like, hey, yeah, I'll go. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. So, um, yeah, so that was really cool. Uh, and it was really cool to spend, like, the whole weekend with her. And we had um, a special time with Christy, which is another, another lady that uh, works mostly with Northwood um, Technical College. But she also helps out with, uh, with UWECBC. And... We had our own time um, because uh, English is not her, her first language, 
So it was really cool to be able to have our own little breakout group of me, her, and Christy, where we really got to dive into uh, God's word and see what that looks like in, in all of our different lives. Yeah, I thought that was about the coolest part of the weekend for me was watching you and Christy, who volunteers with, is on staff with InterVarsity, but watching you take her under her wing, that was pretty awesome. And, and she texted you later on saying that uh, the rest of her friends, exchange students, were pretty jealous of her experience. So IV has another uh, weekender type experience coming up and maybe some more people will go to that. So little, little relationships like that, that's what we're about. So, and um, yeah, just in summary, I like to tell people that we're the most important group on campus and that's not because I'm anything special. It's not because we're anything special. It's because Autumn has really eclectic and dynamic tastes in music. That's, uh, no, it's not, that's not why. It's because we study an amazing book who was written by an amazing God and who did an amazing thing 2,000 years ago. He stepped into time and flesh, lived a real life, died a real death, uh, rose to life again, and promised that we can have his spirit and his power if we believe in him and we're sharing him with the campus. So that's what we're doing. Thank you for supporting us. Uh, yeah, it's a blessing. So thanks. Well, thank you. Um for your ministry, Asher, uh, means a lot uh, as a pastor to see people in the community uh, taking advantage of the situations that they have to share the gospel. Um, October, as you may know, is uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, I, I don't draw that to your attention uh, for myself, but I would like to draw attention, especially to my coworkers who do such an amazing job, Pastor Tony and um, Pastor Cody. As I was preparing this sermon, I was going over um, some statistics about Christian leaders and uh, the impact that they have on uh, their congregations and what that looks like. And um, some of the statistics were a little startling, so we are truly blessed to have them teaching us the Word of God faithfully each week. So uh, as, as you come and go and see them, uh, tell them thank you, because they, uh, they um, make, a, make a very large effort to be in the Word of God each week with their different ministries. Um, the reason I bring that up is because I'm not a big statistics guy, but there are, there are certain um, statistics that I, I enjoy. I'm not a math guy. That's why I went to seminary. I don't like math. Didn't never had to take a math a math class in seminary. Um, but there are some statistics that I enjoy, and um, uh, especially about uh, the evangelical world and uh, the different things in it. And Arizona Christian University uh, does a lot of cultural research. Uh, concerning uh, Christianity and the United States and its involvement there. And they did a study on uh, concerning the worldview of Christian pastors. So they interviewed uh, 1,000 pastors. They sent them a, a questionnaire, whether it was over phone or through email, and different, uh, different ways of communication. And uh, they interviewed uh, everyone. Uh, if you're considered a pastor, they, they interviewed you. So youth pastor, a family pastor, executive pastor, senior pastor, worship pastor, whatever it may be, they, they sent out this study to 1,000 pastors all over the United States. Uh, uh, and it was concerning uh, pastors who have a biblical worldview. So they, they formulated uh, a questionnaire with, with some uh, caveats on the end just to make sure they were able to, to tune in correctly in case someone didn't understand a question properly or, or uh, maybe um, mistyped on their computer. But the, the categories within this study were for purpose and calling, family, value of life, God, creation, and history, 
faith practices, sin, salvation, relationship with God, human character and nature, lifestyle, behavior, relationships, the Bible, truth, and morals. And uh, as I was reading this study, someone actually sent it to me. One of my old Sunday school teachers actually sent it to me, knowing that I was a children's pastor, thought I would be interested in it. And out of the 1,000 they interviewed, there were some shocking results as to those pastors who maintain a biblical worldview. I read uh, some of the questions that they went through. I thought they were quite excellent. Some of them were a little wordy, so uh, working through them could be difficult, but um, not without some thought. So percentages is where it got a little alarming. For those who possess a biblical worldview in the senior and lead pastor category was 41%. 41, 4 out of 10. The next statistic was much more alarming. You can read the statistics and go through each of the categories. They had a children's and youth pastor category, 12%. 12%. And that's why I say thank you to my coworkers for being so sound in their love of the word of God. And I think, as I was reading these statistics, I, I, we have to take them with a grain of salt because there are certain things, and, the, and you have to understand that some of these people are in, being interviewed everywhere from northern Wisconsin to the heart of New York City, all over the United States. But regardless of that, those stats are alarming, to say the least. And what I, what I think attributes to the, uh, the alarming statistics to these men and, and women who uh, claim to be pastors and, and maybe have felt called to be pastors have not been trained or no longer know how to read the Bible well. They don't know how to read it well. Often in our Bibles, you see I have some books up here and uh, we have the Bible, we have uh, biblical theology, we have an atlas of the Bible, systematic theology, then finally we get to application. And so often we go this way. We, wanna s- we start with what we think we know and what we want to put into our lives, into practice, and we work our way back towards Scripture. And I do believe that that is one of the contributing factors in the lack of pastors with a solid biblical worldview. Just to to talk about this, I wanted to bring up one of my favorite books to kind of give an illustration. Has anyone ever read this before? Anyone read Green Eggs and Ham? Right, it's one of one of our one of our favorites. Is when you're when you're uh, learning to read on your own, especially. It's uh, it's a great book, Dr. Seuss. Um, there's a, there's a tale that Dr. Seuss allegedly did it on a dare because they said he couldn't write a award-winning children's book with less than 250 words. He did it with 220. And it's, it's uh, a timeless classic in children's literature. And so we're going to do a little exercise today. We're gonna, there's going to be some involvement. I'm going to need someone to answer this question. What is this book about? What is the moral of this book? Eating green eggs. What, who said, try new things? All right, would you all agree? Try new things? Is that, a, is that a solid representation of this book? We've all read it, I assume. Most of us have read it. Try new things. Well, let's read this book together just for a couple pages. You guys remember this guy? I am Sam. I am Sam. Oh, we got a new guy in there. Running past. I am Sam. 
Sam, I am. Let me get to the next page. That Sam I am, that Sam I am, I do not like that Sam I am. And if we jump to the last page, you may want to change your answer of try new things. If you go to the last page, you'll see this picture. So we go from I do not like that Sam I am to this picture. Maybe this book isn't about trying new things. Maybe this book is don't judge new people. Maybe. And the reason, you know, try new things I thought was, was a fine answer if you haven't read that third page properly. If you don't take into account the entire story, it's easy for the message to get distorted, isn't it? And the Bible is the same For some reason, we like to start elsewhere and bring our beliefs backwards into the text instead of going forwards. We don't want to start with Scripture. We want to end with Scripture so that we can justify our positions. But let me assure you uh, this great truth. We have to start with the story. We have to start with the 66 books. We have to. It's not an option. There is no other right way to live. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Uh, we're going to actually be skipping ahead a little bit uh, because next week is Family Celebration Sunday. And uh, we're going to be covering the passage just before this where Jesus blesses the little children. And then uh, Cody, in, in a few weeks, is going to be doing a, a solid teaching on a, a theology of divorces through the words of Christ here. But we're going to be skipping ahead to a very famous passage, probably one that you know in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. It's, uh, it's a great teaching point in uh, Jesus' uh, teaching career as, as he goes throughout and, and teaching. It's actually in the next few chapters, Mark, I, I don't know if you notice, is he, everything we do, we do quickly. So we're, we're almost flying through the life of Christ, and then in the next few chapters we kind of hit the brakes and Mark begins to almost just have like a, a, a few chapters on one week of Christ's life. So in Mark chapter 10, just to give us some reference points, uh, this passage has uh, some verses that are taken severely out of context. Uh, there, there are different verses that as we read you'll be like, oh, I've, I've seen that here, I've seen that there, people have tried to use this in this way. But they are usually not, in. when we rip a verse out of context and then we put it back in, it has a whole new meaning of what the author intended. But also, we have to understand that uh, crowds have gathered. Jesus, uh, it, in Mark, it's, it's, he got up and went, and he left there, and he traveled here. And so he's getting up to leave, and then this man comes to him. And we know, uh, based on the verses before this, that crowds have gathered and uh, he is doing some teaching and some Pharisees are asking him questions as well, trying to get him to stumble. And Jesus does an excellent job teaching the rich young ruler. Let's read this together. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard. You can follow along in your Bibles in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, 
good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at these words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last. Jesus doesn't give an answer that the rich young ruler particularly appreciates, but he gives, obviously, the right one. Jesus takes some time to correct thoughts and distinctions that the rich young ruler has. He comes to Jesus as saying, good teacher, and, and uh, if you read this, um, knowing the culture there, he's trying to essentially kind of puff Jesus up. He's saying, hey, you know, you're, you're the man, right? You're the man, I, you're, the, you're the right teacher, and uh, although Jesus is the right teacher, the man is not coming to him as one from God or God himself. So Jesus takes some time to create uh, uh, distinctions between this man's thoughts and the reality of the gospel. And we also can see that this man has the wrong understanding of the law. He has a wrong understanding of of the law. The way he has read it is that he has to do all those things to inherit eternal life, but that is not what the law is for. Never has been. And we'll get to that in the next few verses. But the first thing that Jesus uh, talks about and addresses with the man is that being respectably good is not the same as humility. Being respectably Good is not the same as humility. He comes to him and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he quotes the law back to him. And interestingly, Jesus quotes all of the law where humanity relates with one another. He do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. How how humans are meant to interact with one another. Being respectably good is not the same as humility. And he says, Teacher, I have kept up all of these things from my youth up. Jesus looks at him with love and corrects him. It's interesting 
because the the law was meant to was meant to expose sin and show the character of who our God is. So to claim that you have kept the law perfectly is to can't claim the character of God. And so what Jesus does is is as he's talking to him, he says, "All right, you have the character of God. You do what God did. You give up everything." God gave up his son. Jesus gave up everything in heaven that he had to come down to earth. He gave up everything. That's the character of God is humility and submission to the will of the Father. Something that this man obviously does not have because he has an incorrect understanding of the law. God requires a commitment to him, not just his rules. Last week I had the privilege of, of teaching the, the middle schoolers and we talked briefly about Romans chapter 3. This is a great verse if, if you want to understand what the law was for. These are great verses starting in verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world will become accountable to God because the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law has never been the golden ticket to get you into heaven. It never has been. That's not what it was there for. That's what part of the reason Jesus came to correct and help the people understand. The law was never the golden ticket to get into you heaven. It was faithfulness to God and to his promises. Abraham never had the law. I am 100% confident that I will see Abraham in heaven, right? God requires a commitment to him, not just to the rules. And it comes through, through humility and, and faithfulness. That's the characteristic of most of the leaders especially in the Old Testament. Moses, Gideon, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Paul, Stephen, Ruth, all of them shared the same characteristic of humility. They didn't keep the law perfectly. We have an account of most of these people messing up and breaking the law. But it has always rather been, instead of a commitment just to God's rules, a commitment to him. It has always been faith in him doing exactly what he said he's going to do or what he has done. Romans uh, chapter 4 talks about Abraham. For if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. That's, uh, that actually brings up another passage that we misquote later on in Romans. Paul says, he quotes the Psalms and says, no one is righteous. But when he's saying no one is righteous, he's not saying that for the general population, he's actually quoting a psalm that's talking about fools. There are no fools who are righteousness who are righteous because they do not follow God and his promises. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't just, he didn't just follow the rules exactly how God laid him out. Abraham messed up several times in Scripture, but he remained faithful to God and what God was going to do. Abraham didn't have the law. He didn't know a man 
named Jesus was going to come one day. He had the promise of, look in the stars. Your descendants will be like this. As an old man. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's why our Old Testament is so important. To see that. You know the Old Testament takes up four-fifths of your Bible? I think it might be important. It might be important for the rest of the story. We love to jump, especially when we're evangelizing, we love to jump to Romans or Ephesians or the Gospel of John. And all those are great. But where's, where's the first prophecy of Christ found? Anyone? Genesis chapter 3. The great snake head crusher is coming to save you from what you are, from your sin nature. I think our Old Testament might be important. Noah, Job, Daniel, men mentioned, I'm sure you probably did some Bible reading in Ezekiel this week. No? <laughs> Ezekiel is a great, great book of the Bible. Ezekiel 14.14, uh, 14, and there's, there's verses that says, even though these three men Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. Those three men, Noah, Job, and Daniel, great faithfulness to God. Noah messed up. We don't have an account of, of Job and Daniel messing up, but I'm sure that they did because they were human. And yet they were credited righteousness. How can that be if they broke the law, their golden ticket into heaven? Because it's always been faithfulness to God. Being respectably good is not the same as humility. All of those characters I mentioned, Noah, Job, and Daniel, were humble before God. They could have done what they wanted to do. Especially Daniel, facing death on several accounts, stuck to his guns, and was willing to die to be faithful to the faithful one. Being respectably good is not the same as humility, and that's the first thing that Jesus clears up for us in, in the book of Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler. Secondly, is that God wants us to have a good theology of blessing. Um, theology is, is the study of God, or one of my professors in college, I like it, the study of what God has revealed to us, because we, we can only study what he has revealed to us, but God wants us to have a good theology of blessing. And so this man decides to trade the blessings of this world to keep those in light of blessings of eternity, which are far greater. That's what Jesus is trying to get him to understand in that second portion of this passage, is that this man has a theology much like Job's you remember Job's friends? The book of Job is fascinating literature. Just from a literature perspective, it's one of the greatest books ever written. In, in Job chapter 8, Job's friends come to him, and, and Job has been through, through he's, he, was, uh, he was a man who had many things, and then all of a sudden like that, they're taken away because God allows Satan to basically come after Job. And so Job's friends are trying to get him to repent of his sin, but there isn't any sin for Job to repent of in 
this situation. In Job chapter 8, it says, How long, his friend talking to him, How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth, be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice or the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, then they delivered them into the power of their transgressions. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Is that how God works? Giving stuff to the righteous? No. That's not how our God works. I, I don't disagree with the fact that we have many blessings here on earth, but so often we attribute those blessings incorrectly in an effort to keep them for ourselves. Look at, this, look at uh, Hannah. Remember Samuel's mom? What a great theology of blessing. She's barren. She prays for a son. She gets one, and what does she do? Gives him right back to God. Because he, she knows, while it is a blessing, it's not hers alone to keep. The things of this earth are not yours alone to keep. That's a poor theology of blessing. We attribute uh, uh, stuff. We attribute houses. We attribute family members. We uh, attribute vehicles. We attribute cash flow. When we say, oh, God has blessed us so richly. Really? So you're saying God has also blessed Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos? And Mark Zuckerberg? Is that what we're saying? No. That's a, that's a horribly incorrect theology of blessing. Almost every time that, that blessings are mentioned, we're going to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 6 to examine this, but every time blessing is mentioned, just about every time, it is for a future. It's not for right now. It's for a future. It's for eternity with God. That's where the real... Blessing lies. In Matthew chapter 6 is, is a great example of this. It says, Beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Oh, our reward's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites drew in the synagogue or in the streets, so that you may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They have their blessing now. They have whatever, they have their stuff now. But it's a future blessing that we are waiting for. But when you give to the poor, do not, left your, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what you have done in secret will reward you. Future blessing on the other side of eternity. That's very hard for us to understand because we're finite, temporal beings and we like things now, right? We like to get answers now. That's why we have cell phones and email and all those things and we can get someone on the phone really, really quick and we can get, we can get stuff done now. But it's not about now. It's about later. And that's what Matthew chapter 6 and, and Jesus hints at in Mark chapter 10 is that giving up the blessings of now, the blessings of now, for true blessings later. In other words, you can choose an obsession of riches now and lack riches later. I have no doubt that, there, that God has blessed us in some great ways on this side of eternity, but 
they will pale in comparison to what he has for us when we're face to face with our Savior. In, uh, the last thing that Jesus does is actually very interesting because uh, often in his interactions <laughs> with the disciples, just a few weeks ago, we had get behind me, Satan. Remember to Peter? He's like, hey, you have a, you have, that's not what we're doing, Peter. Get, get over yourself. But in this passage, Jesus actually affirms his disciples because they get it. They get it. Jesus explains about, it's, it's going to be very hard to get into the kingdom of heaven. Not even rich people can do it with their riches here on earth but only possible through God. And, and Peter says to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and last will be first. There's a verse that gets ripped out of context all the time. The first will be last, and the last first. Jesus affirms his disciples in their decision to follow him because they get it. They give up their small fishing business, they give up being tax collectors to follow him in humility. They probably didn't even know where their next meal was coming from, but they knew who to be faithful to. They gave up everything for Jesus. And he, he finishes off in saying, hey, you can look at all these guys who have all this stuff. They have big families now. They have big houses now. They have big yards now. They have cool TVs and cool cars. But guess what? In the kingdom of heaven, those people have attributed too much stuff to me. And what he's saying is the blessing to come is going to be far better than the blessing now, so store up your treasures in heaven. It's not about what's happening in your short 80 plus years of life here. It's about eternity. I understand that's hard for us to understand. We don't even have a concept of eternity. We can't even properly describe our everlasting God without using words that are temporal and finite. Before, the, before time existed, well, you can't use the word before because time isn't existing. There is no before. It's eternity. We don't understand it, but we're going to be a part of it. Many, in, many presently in power will not be. That's, that's the other thing. He says, in this present age, houses, brothers, sisters, all this great stuff, but in eternity, well, let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 5 to see what Jesus says about blessings. In eternity. One of the most famous passages in Scripture, the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Future blessing. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Future blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Future blessing. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Future blessing. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Future 
blessing. That's what it's all about. That's what Jesus is trying to get the rich young ruler to understand. You've got to trade the stuff of this life for the blessings of the next one. You have to trade the stuff, the money. We, we're, we're so caught up in the stuff of this life that we were so caught up, in, and even with our tithes and offerings, we have our, we have our 10%, right? We've got our 10% we give to church. That, that's, a, that's a biblical theme from the Old Testament, and it's it somewhat continued in the New Testament. But what do the disciples do? They give up everything. What do the apostles do to the church? They give up everything. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They don't give up everything, and look what happens to them. It's giving up everything. It's not yours anyway. Get rid of it. Give freely. The neglected will be remembered. That's what, Matt, that's what Matthew's writing about in Matthew chapter 5. The neglected, those who are not in power now, those who do not have a lot of stuff now, those who give freely now, who are faithful to God now, have a far greater future reality. Because the neglected will be remembered. The meek, the peacemakers, those who understand what this life is truly about. And it's not about stuff. We don't have a vending machine God where if we behave, we get stuff. That's not how it works. We don't have a vending machine God where if we misbehave, we get bad stuff. That's not how it works. We've been given things, whatever we've been given, whoever is faithful in little is faithful in much. If we cannot be faithful in little, that's why he hasn't given you a lot. And we can see those who have been given a lot who probably should have just been given a little. We have a poor theology of blessing. So what are we meant to do with these uh, attitudes? What are we meant to do? Being respectably good is not the same as humility. God wants us to have a good theology of blessing, and Jesus affirms you as a disciple, giving everything up to follow him. So what are we meant to do with those things? And a, and a big thing that the rich young ruler does not do is come to the word in humility, whether it was the law or whether it was Jesus Christ himself. He doesn't come with an attitude of humility because he's not willing to be wrong. Being wrong is awful. I hate it. I detest it. But I have to be willing to be wrong. I'm married. I'm wrong all the time. But I have to be, there has to, there's a willingness there. It, it, just like in marriage, you have to be willing to be wrong sometimes. It's hard. Having humility is hard. But how much harder was it for Jesus to humble himself even to the cross? Philippians 2 outlines that perfectly for us. Come to the word with humility. As, as, as I was saying before, we have this pandemic of Christian leaders who do not have a good theological, biblical understanding of the world that they live in because I, I, I believe that they start with their application and go all the way back through. There's some very scary, and I, I don't use that word lightly, scary pastors out there. Would you agree? They're scary for what they're doing on this side of, of eternity. They're, it's scary. There's a man who went to the same college as I did. My brother actually had, had a few classes with him. They weren't friends or anything, but he is now a minister in, in the, I believe, the United Methodist Church who is actively gay and preaching this is a, a, a sermon that he gave. He's on uh, TikTok. There's an excerpt of his sermon that when Jesus, this is, I'm not making this up. You can find this on YouTube. 
when that Jesus says, come out to Lazarus from the grave, he was actually talking about Lazarus' sexuality. That's scary. Because what he has done is he hasn't started here. He started over here and worked his way backward and shoved it in the scripture. But at the same token, I think, we also, we also have to be careful with things that we uh, enjoy very much. Uh, every, for just about every sermon I give, I use an illustration from a movie. I actually did do that today, but I, I love film. I love movies. I love TV shows. I love, and, and even seeing how they're made. But one, one genre of film that I don't particularly enjoy is the Christian genre. And you can disagree with me on this, but I, I really do not enjoy it from, from a... Uh, from a theological side because they try to romanticize the word and put more emotion into it and make it something that it's not. Let me give you an example. There's a great, um, a great following for um, a, a newer production of, of the life of Christ. And, uh, and one of the scenes, I, I, was, I was watching this actually when we were in Albania, and in one of the scenes uh, in John chapter 3, what do we know about John chapter 3? Who's Jesus talking to? Nicodemus, very good. And he comes to him at nighttime, right? All right, so we have Nicodemus and Jesus at night. So they got that right. I was like, wow, that's great. And, but by the end of the scene, I was very distraught because Jesus said some things and Nicodemus said some things that don't line up if we were to read our Bibles correctly. At the end of the scene, it has Nicodemus on his knees admitting that Jesus is Lord. And to be honest, we don't have, if we go through John chapter 3, we, we just get, the story just kind of ends with Nicodemus. Jesus gives him the example. He says, I am the light. I am, I am the, the son of man came into the world to save the world, all that stuff. And we don't have an ending where, where Nicodemus does that. And you could make the argument that Nicodemus came to know Jesus as his Lord. You could make that argument, but I think there's a far greater one if we were to actually read our Bibles and know why John chapter 3 is where it is. Because if we go to John chapter 4, we have the story of the uh, Samaritan woman who comes to the well, and Jesus says, you know, I'm the, I'm the living water, and she's like, she's not really understanding, and then she, what does she do? She goes into town and says, this is the Christ who you've been waiting for. The Samaritan woman, the enemy of the Jews, goes in and says that. And so that's why I caution you to be careful with Christian media, because I'm going to read John chapter 1 and explain to you exactly why John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 are right there. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to him as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through, through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which was coming into the world and lightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. And he came to his own. Okay, we're talking about Jesus. Who are his own? Who are his own? The Jews. Who would be a prime example of the Jews? Nicodemus. Listen to what John says about his own. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But if we continue on, we learn why John chapter 4 is right there. But as many as received him, to get them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That is why John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 are right next to each other. Because Nicodemus doesn't get it, but a Samaritan woman does. Because now the gospel is not just for the Jews, it is for the entire world. Because the Jews failed miserably in waiting for their Messiah. 
that's why it's there. And that's why we have to be so cautious. I, I urge you, I, I, I don't want to stand on a soapbox, but with Christian media, be very cautious because it will put things into your head that is not in Scripture. I was actually talking about this with Suzette as we teach Sunday school, and, and I asked her if she watched this certain thing. She says, no, I don't like to have that in my head before I teach. I don't like to have that in my head. I want to stay true to the Word, what the Word has to say. Do we... This is the greatest story ever written, and you have to read it as a story, just, just like we read Green Eggs and Ham. We have to read this as a story. That's why I'm, I'm so cautious uh, when, I, when I hear people who take, don't take the, the, the stories of creation literally, who don't take the accounts of Noah and Jonah literally, because it is a story, and if you read it right, it is so obvious why those stories are there. If you read from Genesis all the way to the end in the maps in your Bible, you will understand why each book is laid out the way it is, why each chapter even is laid out the way it is, and what the writers were trying to get at. You have to read it as every other story so that you will realize that it's not like any other story. It's written as a story. In the beginning, how many other stories start like that? In the beginning, God created. And we go from there. It's written as the grand narrative of redemption. It's not meant to be read in isolation with one another. That's how we have people attributing uh, certain passages about Lazarus, but on the other spectrum, that's how we have people uh, adding to Scripture to make it more emotionally compelling. It doesn't have to be more emotionally compelling. It's complete in what it is. You have to come to it with humility. If I were, remember this, remember what we, when we first read this, what we thought the main point was? try new things, and then we just, read, we just go to page three and suddenly our outlook changes. It's the same with this. You have to read it from, and I urge you, if you haven't, read it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It will blow your mind. Read it as a story too. I, I'm very grateful to the scribes and, and all the people who put all the work to put in the verses and the chapters. I am immensely grateful to have those reference points, but we use them as a crutch to not read the letter of Ephesians as it's meant to be read. Do you think, do you think that when the Ephesians got the letter that they were like, I, a uh, bondservant of Paul. Wow! <laughs> what theology there? No, they read the whole thing! Read it as it's meant to be read. It's a story. We like to have our quiet time and focus on all these little nitpicky things, but read it as it's meant to be read. You have to read the verse as it fits in the chapter. You have to read the chapter as it's meant in the book, and you have to read the book as it's meant in the Testament. You have to read the Testament in light of where it is in the whole grand narrative of Scripture. Otherwise, you end up with an incorrect worldview, as we mentioned before. You have to cling to the Word of God with humility and reverence. That's what I urge you today. Come to the word with humility. Don't come to this with presuppositions. Be, be ready to be wrong. Be ready to be, to be wrong. There's many things. As I was in college, I went to seminary. I realized very quickly that I was wrong about a lot of things in Scripture because I was learning from men and women who had been studying this story for their entire lives. Let me give you an example. I, I never had this professor, but um, you might r recognize the name Dr. Pentecost. Dr. Pentecost uh, worked at the seminary. I'm, I'm now uh, doing my online uh, Master's of Theology through Dallas Theological Seminary. And Dr. Pentecost worked there, I believe, for 
60-some years. And at the end of his career, he would come in. Uh, I, I've heard this story, sev- story several times before. He'd come in with his walker. And there'd be actually, he'd have an assistant behind him because he wasn't, um, he wasn't spatially aware. He didn't have a lot of things going on. He would put his Bible down, and he would look at the student in the front row and go, what class are we in? The student would tell him, oh, we're in Daniel and Revelation. He goes, okay, what chapter are we in? And the student would tell him, oh, we finished Daniel 7 last week. And then right from there, Dr. Pentecost, without notes, just with the word of God, would go through whatever lecture he had for Daniel chapter 8. And if you were to go into his office, uh, my, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Klinger, uh, was a student of his, and he went into his office one day, and his office had a bunch of empty bookshelves. Empty bookshelves. Most professors... Uh, Offices you go into look like Cody's office, full of bookshelves. And he asked him, Prof, why do you have empty bookshelves? And he's like, and he's, the, the reason he gave is, he said this, I'm trying to be a student of one book. I'm trying to be a student of one book. That doesn't mean we, take it, we don't take input from others. That doesn't mean that these other resources are not valuable. I'm very grateful to the men and women who have put this together. But when they put these together, they made the assumption that you would read this one first because this sheds light on these, not the other way around. The Word of God sheds a lot of light onto our biblical commentaries, not the other way around. Come to the Word with humility. Read it as a story as it's meant to be read. It'll blow your mind. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your Word and the life that it brings. I pray for uh, us as believers that we would, we would rightly divide the word of truth as, as Paul urged Timothy to do. I pray that we, as, as we examine the word that we would examine ourselves, that we wouldn't try to put in any theology that isn't there, that we would understand why the books are in the way, written in the way that they are, that the, the verses and chapters or merely a reference point that we should understand the whole book if we're going to read it properly. Thank you for the 66 books of your word that shed light into our lives and teach us every time we come to them. Thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before you go this morning, let me read you a benediction from First Peter. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober mind and be on alert for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Enjoy the sunshine.